Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Hey, Rachel, how was the Grand Canyon? It was amazing, Chris. It was so good, but I have to tell you, I am so tired. So in case people missed it, tell us about the trip. What, what were you doing? So I had the rare opportunity to hike to Havasupai. It's a reservation in the middle of the Grand Canyon, um, a Native American reservation, and it has the most amazing blue water and the coolest waterfalls you could ever imagine. Um, But in order to get there, you have to hike 10 miles and then you have to camp while you're there and you have to get a permit, which the permits sell out within, you know, two hours of them going on sale for the year. And um, yeah, it was, it was really intense, but really amazing. And I'm just so happy that I was able to go. It's been on my bucket list for a really long time. So I finally checked that off the bucket list. You know, you didn't go by yourself or did you go with friends or how, I, did, how did it all work? Yes. I went with a group of my friends. We've all been trying to get these permits for, I guess, two years now and we finally got them. And so, um, yeah, I went with a, a group of my, my best friends and it was, it was so fun. We're so tired though. We kept like joking the whole trip. We were like, now we need a vacation from our vacation. Cause that was not a vacation. <laughs> I think over the course of um, three days, we we hiked almost 30 miles. So it was super intense. That sounds awesome. I wish I could have gone. That would have been so cool. I know. And you know what was really cool? The only way you can get in is by hiking 10 miles or they also have, I think two or three times a week, they have a helicopter. Um, And so like, of course, like we were hiking out and so tired. The last two miles is straight up. I think you gain almost 3,000 feet in elevation gain. Because basically you have to hike down into the Grand Canyon and then you kind of walk along the basin of the Grand Canyon to get to the campsite and the waterfalls. But the last two miles straight up and it was helicopter day. So we kept seeing these helicopters fly by and I was like, please take me on your helicopter. But we made it and I felt super accomplished at the end. So while you were in the Grand Canyon, I was in Connecticut. I got to present at a conference there. And uh, so something interesting happened there, Rachel, is that, so I was presenting like a a three-hour workshop on the the, the fundamentals of AAC. And the room, when I got there, I didn't realize this is how I was going to be. I'm used to presenting sort of in a, in a flat room. Do you know what I mean? Like this was auditorium style, you know, like a theater, if you will, which made it very different. I, you know, having done many presentations, it's rare that I'm in that sort of style, like an old uh, college lecture hall or something. This was actually in a museum that, that had a big movie screen behind it and everything. I was like, oh, I should be in IMAX, you know? <laughs> uh, and as people do, they came in and they sat in the back. You know, most people don't come right and sit in the front. And so I just moved to be, to, to produce the entire presentation from the stairs, you know? But it's amazing how the environment changes the presentation and the communication and the whole experience because I try and have many uh, interactive experiences so it's not just me talking the entire time you know and uh, like there's a part where I said let's all all get together and and just break up into small groups and see how many words you can make from this core communication board you know when you're sitting in tables and you're in a big flat area people will get up and they'll move and the chairs have rollers they can move around and then and people will get together and work in small groups but when you're in a theater style and you're you're already sitting in this chair and you're 
on one end of the auditorium and someone else is on the other. Like people aren't getting up and moving. They're not even like turning around because it's uncomfortable. And so it was, it was hard to work in a collaborative space. And I'm just realizing how much the environment really impacts the, uh, the, the learning experience and the communication that happens in that experience. And I think that's such an important reminder when we're thinking about the children that we work with, right? Like we know the setting up the environment can be so beneficial on so many levels from a sensory standpoint, um, you know, making sure that a child's not, you know, directing a window that's shining bright light in their eyes, um, you know, especially if we're thinking about children with access issues or children who are using eye tracking. Um, these are all really important things to keep in mind. Um, just, you know, generally speaking, I think environment is important for everyone, as you, you know, mentioned, Chris. I know myself, I have to be, if I'm going to be sitting and doing really hard task cognitively, I can't have clutter everywhere. So I'm like, okay, first I need to clean this my desk off. Like I need to just do some preparation before I'm going to maximize my efforts. Um, and so I think it's just so important to think about. And I love working with, with occupational therapists because out of all of the kind of disciplines, I think that they remember both environment and posture are so, so important. Um, so if you have any OTs that you can collaborate with, I'm just doing an overlap session with, you know, maybe a, a child who has some sensory challenges or, you know, it's just so beneficial to collaborate in those ways. And a lot of what I've learned um, from sensory obviously has been from occupational therapy and doing those overlaps. They're so important. You know, I find it often uh, the environment is almost invisible. And so how do we make it more transparent? And so just as an example, because this is going to be maybe a funny one, Rachel, is that you and I are right now are recording via Zoom, right? We've, we've said many times that we've never actually met in person. And people can't see this right now, but you're wearing glasses, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I'm kind of looking at you in the, in the Zoom, you're looking at a computer screen and the reflection of your computer screen is on your glasses. So I can't really see your eyes. It's just these, these big blue spots covering your eyes because of your computer screen. In fact, it's me, really. And if I really, you know, if I freeze-framed it and zoomed in, I'd be looking at a mere reflection of me in your eyes. That is something that is just so subtle, right? But imagine if you are really distracted by that, you know? What if that is what you're focusing on, you're keying on, and, and that would be something that would be, yeah, I could really easily interpret like that I'm, I'm not looking at you, or I'm shying away, or that, or, or that it's a behavior of mine when really it's that piece of the environment that is impacting the communication exchange. And you hit the nail on the head, Chris. The kids that I work with who have autism, I can't wear my glasses around them because the exact same thing happens. They're seeing their reflection in my glasses. Um, you know, even if I have a Band-Aid on my finger, they're distracted sometimes. Um, I have another uh, little guy and I typically wear my hair back but I was going to, I was going to something, some type of networking event. So I had my hair down and totally threw him off. Just like seeing me with my hair down. <laughs> so it's just like these small things, like you said, they can, or they can be attributed to like, oh, well, he's not attending or he's being behavioral, or, you know, all these things. And it's just like, you don't even realize, you know, are happening. Same thing. I have reflection from my, my watch sometimes um, is enough to distract one of the students I'm working with. So just keeping those things in mind is, is so important. I think we kind of jump when a child's not doing, you know, what we want them to do. It's just like, we kind of, our brain jumps to like, oh, they're just not listening, you know? And like, instead 
it should be, okay, how can I manipulate the environment or think about really thinking through their lens, right? Thinking like, what are they seeing right now? And sometimes what I'll do is I'll literally move my chair over because I, I know we've all worked with those kids and it's like, what are you looking at? Like, what is, what is behind my shoulder? That's so interesting that like, you can't like really attend to what I'm saying you're doing. Um, and sometimes I'll just scooch my chair over and I'll sit next to them um, just to see like from their vantage point, like what's going on down here. I um, mean, sometimes it's nothing, but sometimes it's like, oh, you see a construction worker outside the window. That's what's happening right now. <laughs> so I think it's um, just a really important reminder. Yeah. And I think it's a, a mindset of leading with that idea, right? There's a thought that sometimes you, you want to, um, kind of like you said, the student is not doing this. So therefore I'm blaming the student. But what if you led with the thought that it is never the student's fault? So there's something else that's causing this distraction, you know, and then what can I do to one, figure it out? And what can I do then to, to mitigate that distraction? Uh, you know, for instance, you mentioned how putting a student by a window, someone might look out the window or that the window might reflect off the computer screen or the screen of the communication device. And from your angle, you might not see that reflection. It might look completely clean and easy to, to access. But from where the student's sitting, that reflection, whatever the device might be, might be like a mirror to them. You know what I mean? Because of the reflection off the window. And those sorts of things, just leading with the idea that hmm, maybe it's environmental, maybe it's something I'm doing, maybe it's some other element than something that's internal to the student. And the other thing I think about too, when we're thinking about distractors is sometimes we don't realize, you know, there's auditory distractors that are present that really make communication difficult and make language processing more difficult, um, which is why it's so important that we give students an alternative means to communicating. And that leads perfectly into our interview today. Um, you know, we're talking with Alyssa Hillary Zisk and they talk about how important it is for adults with autism to have a backup communication system. Rachel, can I interrupt you for a second and ask you, you interviewed one person, but you're using the pronoun they. Can you explain that for a second? Yes. So Alyssa identifies as non-binary. Yes. So after completing the pre-interview questions, Alyssa wrote, heads up, I'm non-binary. You can ask me about gender issues, but not quotes as a woman because I'm not one. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. So of course we want to respect Alyssa and we are going to be using those pronouns when we talk about Alyssa. So before we jump into the interview, let's just talk about a kind of a follow-up to what we've talked about in a previous banter, which was the article, the Kathy Binger article, about how parents should be cautious of going out and buying apps on their own and that they needed an AAC assessment before they did that. Uh, we talked about that in a previous episode, and there has been some follow-up to that kind of conversation. Uh, Dana Nieder came out on her blog, the Uncommon Sense blog, and she wrote another blog post that kind of in response to that one that Kathy Binger wrote, basically saying respect the parents, uh, understand that people come from different perspectives, kind of what we were saying in our banter that, that there's multiple ways that people can find uh, their voice through AAC and find the tool that works for them as a person and for their family, right? And then what happened after that, Rachel, just to kind of keep everyone up, and I, I really advocate for people to find these articles. We can link them in, the, in our show notes. Uh, 
Kathy Binger actually wrote a comment uh, to Dana Nieder in the blog, which was so well-worded and so professional. And I just thought it, it kind of spoke to me and I hope to a lot of people about just how professional correspondence should happen. You know, sometimes social media, I've said it before, I'll say it again, kind of gets a bad rap that conversations can uh, devolve into arguments, you know, and it's all about getting your side and your point of view across and who's right. And this is not that at all. Uh, it is There's this total uh, uh, respect uh, back and forth that, that really shapes the whole conversation. And I don't know, I just felt like it was a really good correspondence that I feel like anyone working in the field should kind of read and internalize. Exactly. And this is why, you know, social forums are so powerful sometimes is because you look at things through your specific lens and your specific experience shapes what you think about something. Uh, but it's really important to think about different perspectives. And I think this is the perfect example of that. Often I've seen, especially on you know, Facebook groups, just kind of like mudslinging, it feels like. It's like, well, this is what I believe and what you believe isn't true. And that's not what this was. This was very thoughtful responses from both uh, Dana Nieder and Kathy Binger and a lot of other actually AAC celebrities in the comments. Um, a lot of uh, big names were responding to this and it was just beautiful. And that's how we learn, right? We listen. To, um, maybe it doesn't change what we think, but at least we're open to different ideas. And I think that's the most important thing, especially when you're thinking about things that are, you know, maybe somewhat controversial just really being able to open yourself up, uh, put your ego aside for a second and just really be open, you know, because it's really important, especially as clinicians to listen to a parent perspective. A lot of us clinicians, we, we're not parents to children with special needs, so we don't understand. Of course, we understand language and communication and we have specialized training, but the parent perspective is very valuable and I think it helps guide our practice um, if we listen to it, if we're open to it. So I just loved reading those comments. Like Chris said, I would highly recommend reading both Data Needer's article and all the comments below, um, including Kathy Binger's response. It was, um, it was beautiful. I, I really loved it. All right, so without further ado, let's listen to Rachel's interview with Alyssa. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, and I'm so excited. Today, we are joined by Alyssa Hillary Zisk. Alyssa, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's finals week, but mostly I'm good. Ah, well, I'm so happy that you decided to, to come on our podcast, especially given you have such a busy week. Um, so can you just start off by explaining to our audience who you are and your background? All right. So in no particular order, I am a graduate student in neuroscience. I do work related to brain-computer interfaces, mostly for people with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So what that means mostly is I sit in front of a computer and argue with a program called MATLAB. I also 
do some general neurodiversity work, like looking at representation of neurological differences and queerness and such. And then I do work on augmentative and alternative communication for autistic adults, which that research is not directly about me, but it does apply to me because I am an autistic adult who uses AAC part-time. Yes. Um, You just recently had an article published. And so I really am excited when you sent this to me, Alyssa, I was so pumped. I could not believe I was reading it. And I was just so excited because I feel like I haven't read an article like this before. Um, So can you just explain this article uh, to our listeners? Alrighty. So I can tell you that you haven't read one like it before because I did a literature review and there wasn't one. I wrote an article about AAC for speaking autistic adults because even autistic people who use speech may experience intermittent speech. What that would basically mean is your ability to speak varies over time or between situations. This could include selective mutism, but it is not just selective mutism. Mm -hmm. For example, for me, my ability to speak will give out if I'm sick If I'm tired, if I've already done a lot of talking that day, I expect to be typing this afternoon at improv, Um, or sensory overload in addition to anxiety issues. We could have unreliable speech, so that would overlap somewhat with scripting, but not in the sense of all scripts being unreliable, just in the sense of if you fall onto a script that you don't mean to be on and it doesn't mean what you want, that would be unreliable speech. So you go to the doctor, you're not fine. The nurse asks how you're doing. You hit the I'm fine and you script. You're not fine. Gotcha, gotcha. And then there's also insufficient speech, which is you can talk, but that doesn't mean you can say everything you need to. Um, Initiating could be harder than responding. Emotional content could be harder than factual content any of a number of reasons, you might have speech that sounds good and just isn't enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Autistic adults may use AAC to address literally any of those issues or all of them. Um, Lots of free and low cost tools that may or may not be designed specifically for AAC. Uh, It can make it less obvious that this is what we're doing in case we're around people who are going to be crap about this. But those ones usually aren't designed for purpose. Um, We may also have dedicated apps. We might learn signed languages. I basically argue that autistic adults using AAC for these reasons is a good thing that we should encourage it and that we really need to know more about this stuff. The peer-reviewed literature that I was able to cite was all tangentially relevant, but the this is actually about an autistic adult who uses AAC was basically all first-person narratives. Mm -hmm. Great, but not necessarily the information where SLPs are finding it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see this as a huge gap in the research, right? I mean... It's something that I, you know, clinically realize the importance of in my practice. I work with so many children with autism and they have, you know, verbal language and verbal speech, but it's like you said, it's not always consistent. It's not always reliable. Um, It's not always the preferred communication method, you know, given the specific day and time 
in situation. And so it's something that I'm trying to constantly talk to parents, teachers, other SLPs about, um, you know, because really what we want to do is we want to support communication in different situations. And it doesn't mean that we always use one form of communication across the board. Um, but specifically, I feel like with children and adults with autism. Um, and so I'm just so excited that you, you know, came on, decided to share your story, but also are really, you know, making a profound impact as far as the, the research is concerned and, you know, showing there's a, there's a gap here. We need to, you know, do more research about this. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, not just one mode of communication, do you only use one mode of communication? Exactly. No, absolutely not. Neither do I. Um, So Alyssa, you know, I'm really intrigued. You have, you know, you're a part-time AAC user. Um, Did you ever have speech therapy, you know, as a child? And what did that look like? I had speech therapy when I was younger. It was frankly useless. Uh, I was referred to speech therapy because I had difficulty with the ER sound. They neither fixed my ER sound nor did they catch on to my other speech and communication difficulties, intermittent and insufficient speech that I now use AAC for. Um, Chinese class fixed my R sound. Wow. (laughs) They, no one has ever successfully taught me how to make the standard American R sound but the Chinese teacher was able to teach me how to make the one that's used in Chinese. And as long as it's fluid and recognizable, no one notices the difference. No, I mean, I definitely never noticed. So well done, Chinese teacher. (laughs) So let me ask you then, I'm so intrigued. How did you learn about AAC? Because it sounds like the professionals that were in your life were not the ones who introduced you to it. I met other autistic AAC users. Wow. That, like, I learned about AAC from other autistic people, some speaking, some not, who used AAC. Wow. Is there any type of, you know, online support or community for, you know, maybe adults with autism who are either interested in AAC or, you know, how I'm just trying to think, how can we bring, you know, adult AAC users together or just build that awareness in the adult, you know, autism community? On Facebook, I'm aware of several AAC groups. Um, There's Autism AAC Community I think is what that one of them is called, Autism AAC. No, it's Autistic AAC Community. Okay. Is one. There's Ask Me, I'm an AAC user. Ooh. It's not autism specific, but it is autistic heavy. Um, Kate Ahern, who I know mentioned me when she was on. Um, I don't think it was by name, but she did reference me. I was the math teacher. Yeah, that's how we that's how we got connected through Kate. Yeah. Um, I was the math teacher, but she has a group called AAC through Motivate Model Move Out of the Way. Fantastic group. I'm a part of that group and just love her and all and the work she does. 
many AAC companies have community groups for users, including Assistiveware has an adult user community. Um, uh, most of those are closed groups. So you can search them, you can find them. You're not going to see what's posted unless you're actually in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like a, maybe, maybe I can reach out to some of these groups and see if there's anybody else who would love to come talk about their experience. Cause you know, it's really, really uh, something that Chris and I are really passionate about is really, you know, what better way to teach and learn about AAC than to talk to actual AAC users. Right. Um, and so I think that that's, those are all really, you know, great groups and it sounds like you kind of have a pulse in the community. Um, the AAC online community, um, which I think is so great that we have these online resources where we can, you know, connect people who have common interests and, um, you know, shared passions. So this is great. Um, you talked a little bit about the scripts. Can you talk, because I know that's something that, you know, as a practitioner, I work with a lot of children who um, are very good at learning scripts and they use them appropriately. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with scripting and scripts and um, what that's been like? Yeah. Um, so for me, mine tend to run heavily towards references. So I startle very easily. I have explained this to mathematicians, of which my master's in, in math, and I teach math, so. For all epsilon greater than zero, there exists a stimulus less than epsilon that will still manage to startle me. Basically, there is no minimum stimulus level where you can say anything less than that and I won't startle. No, if, if it's detectable, I might startle. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I use scripts because having a script that suits the occasion gets my point across at less words-making effort, at less words-making effort than coming up with new words and making mouth sounds at the same time. So it's, it's quicker. It's easier. It's, you know, maybe in some cases more reliable. I think that in order of reliability on average most reliable is hand me a keyboard followed by factual information i have a script for mm -hmm. then other scripts then original speech wow this is fascinating to me and i think it's so important because i feel like how do we you know as a practitioner how do i you know, cultivate a therapeutic experience, um, you know, that takes these things into account and what better way than to talk to an adult, right? Like who has the experience and, you know, has the communication now that allows you to talk about your experience. So I'm just, oh, this is so exciting to me. You know, it, you talked a lot about the keyboard, right? You talked about that's your, your most reliable. Um, you know, what, how, what kinds of apps do you use AAC or otherwise that can help support your communication? Oh, goodness. Um, so considering that writing for publication is part of how my communicate, like part of my communication, that is communication, um, word processing programs. Mm -hmm. OpenOffice is one of the first things I install on any new computer. Um, 
both for writing for publication and because in meetings and for presentations, sometimes my communication method is I'm going to open up open office. I'm going to make my font big and I'm going to project my screen to the room. Yeah. Um, I also have Proloquo for text Mm -hmm. on my iPad. And how do you explain to somebody who maybe thinks, oh, I have more apps. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Please, please, please continue. I'm I'm so excited, Alyssa. I have so many questions. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also have Flipwriter on my iPad. Flipwriter's main thing is it takes whatever you're typing and flips it over so that somebody sitting across from you can read what you're typing without needing to spin around the iPad. It's on the phone, on the iPhone as well. Um, It also has speech generation using system voices, which might be lower quality, but does give you access to text to speech in any language iOS has a system voice for. Oh, wow. That's super valuable because I speak more than just English. I have inconsistent speech in English and Mandarin Chinese. Oh my goodness, you're impressing me by the minute, Alyssa. Any other apps that you use? See, I have eSpeak on my laptop. That's not designed for AAC, but it's free and it does text-to-speech. And again, it does Chinese. And then low-tech, I've used whiteboard markers because I was a teacher and a grad student. Um, We're all already using those. Let's grab them for when speech isn't working too. Uh, pen and paper, pen and index cards, because the index cards fit in my pocket and they are good for leaving with students. Mm-hmm. That I think actually covers the apps. Yeah. That, I mean, I think it just reiterates the point that you can use multiple modalities, multiple apps, multiple communication systems, depending very heavily on the context, right? And where you are and not only the context of the environment, but also the context of, you know, your state that day, you know, how are you, how is your body feeling? Very much so. And I remember in another episode of this podcast, there was the question of talking about alternative systems versus backup systems. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, I think it depends on the reasoning for the multiple systems. If I'm writing on an index card and leaving it with a student in my class because it fits the need for the situation, I can answer their question and move on and help someone else and they don't need to remember what I just wrote because they can Mm -hmm. read it again. That's an alternative. Mm -hmm. But if I'm writing on an index card at lunch, when I would rather be using FlipWriter to talk to the person across from me, but my battery's dead, that's a backup option. Gotcha. That's a really good differentiation that I think is important um, to make because um, we often think of like, and, and, and I feel like we oftentimes, even myself, like I think through the lens of, okay, like, you know, this student is using X system, right? We forget that there's all these other types of systems, apps that could potentially be beneficial, especially, you know, with typing and, um, you know, systems where you're able to use word processors and this flip writer, which I'm really excited to check out and see what that one's all about. Cause I haven't even heard of that. It's um, too. Oh, good. It's not always like that with these, these apps. So I'm happy to hear that. I mean, by like App Store standards, it's not cheap, but by AAC standards, it's cheap. (laughs) Perfect. 
Yeah, we'll definitely link to those apps that you shared uh, in the show notes. Um, but one of my questions, Alyssa, is, you know, how do you explain to people who, you know, maybe you've had a situation where you've had a conversation with them, you know, just a verbal conversation, but then, you know, the next day you're having a hard time, whether it be you're feeling tired or, you know, it's the end of the day. Um, how do you explain to them, you know, I use you know, alternative systems um, to communicate sometimes? Is there a way that you can, you know, approach people with that information that, you know? It varies. Um, at one end of the spectrum, I have dumped this on people with no explanation whatsoever. Um, I'm not going to lead in with an explanation of why I'm typing today. I'm just typing today. Or yeah. I didn't warn you that this was a thing that could happen. And now speech is out. It went out in the middle of class, but I can reach the side whiteboard from where I am. So I'm writing on the board now. That's really amazing to me that, you know, so quickly it can just feel like the inability to communicate, right? It's yeah, it, just... it cuts in and out sometimes on the order of minutes. Wow. Um, especially if flashing lights are part of the picture, it mm -hmm. will go real fast. Wow. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there'll be that this is the formal accommodation that I am registered with disability services for at my university. So I have a letter from disability services with wording that I've been able to workshop because I'm the only one at my university who has this right now. Mm -hmm. So I send the PDF of the letter to my professor ahead of the semester. We have a meeting. They have no clue what my accommodation actually is because I'm the first one they've met. I explain. I offer to show them the apps, talk about the classroom layout, talk about given that layout, which ones are most likely to come up mm -hmm. and which like what am I most likely to actually use in their classroom whether it's eSpeak, whether it's a whiteboard marker, whether it's ProLoquo for text. Uh, it's been all of those. It's been FlipWriter too, actually. I think it's been literally all of them. <laughs> okay. So have you had any pushback or any negative experiences or have people generally been pretty open? People have not argued with me about the AAC use itself, but I have noticed a different treatment otherwise depending on whether people meet me speaking first or whether they meet me using AAC first or whether it's one of those only hmm. um and I have noticed differences in how much I'm included in discussions within subclasses depending on which one I'm using yeah, because I guess you might think if someone's first experience with you is as, you know, an AAC user, that they might feel like different than if they hear you speaking first. I feel like that might be a natural inclination, but um, how can you communicate that, you know, I'm sure you want to be involved in the discussions, right? At least, you know, at some level, depending That's on the day. 
how can that's you that's why I've got these tools. Right, exactly. So how can you advocate um and really just inform? I feel like it's it's a lot of people probably just don't aren't informed about it. Um, which is why I'm so excited we're doing this podcast because hopefully we can share, spread this word. Um, but are there, are there any things that you can, you know, say to people um or you know, even to our listeners, um, to just open people's minds to to this idea of being a part-time AAC user? I mean, as far as the level of inclusion, I would love to be able to say that it's about knowledge, but considering that the discussions where I was most included were with professors whose lead-in question when I explained my accommodations tended to be things like, I'm happy to accommodate you, but looking at your letter, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> what what do you actually get? I'm not convinced that the way we usually teach people about it is the way that actually leads to that kind of inclusion. I mm -hmm. mean, I know that allowing more response time for AAC users matters. That part of education is great, but somewhere in what we've been teaching, I think there's an inclination to underestimate or to ask less and figuring out where that's coming from. It's probably something deeper because we generally try not to explicitly say not to expect people to be able to participate, but it's the clueless. It's the people who have never heard of this before who tend to do the best. Wow. I think that poses a really interesting question. Where does that come from? And I'm just kind of thinking through it. And, you know, perhaps people realize that, you know, if you were, or, or maybe the assumption is if you're using a, an alternative communication system, that the act of communication in general is sometimes challenging. And so, you know, not wanting to feel like we're, you know, putting a demand or a pressure on the situation. Um, um, but I think there's a way that we can do this and, you know, really support, like, we want to know what you have to say. We want to include you. Um, we understand if, today is not a good day or this moment's not a good moment, but I think that you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, how can we get that inclusive piece? Um, you know, so that you can decide if you want to, you know, participate or not, you can decide if it's the right moment or not. Um, instead of having, you know, somebody who's leading a discussion decide for you. Does that make yeah, sense? That, that definitely does make sense. And I think part of how we, you know, educate is things like this podcast. So, you know, I think it's just such a valuable experience listening to your experience. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully these things will change over time. Um, I definitely would love if I, if I could say my AAC wish list, um, I would love more acceptance and general education about how beneficial AAC can be on a part-time basis, um, especially for individuals with autism. Um, I just, I can't tell you how many times I get the question, well, he's, he's talking. Why would we use a device? And I'm like, ah, well, exactly. You can't see us listeners, but we're like shaking our ha hands crazily. Um, you know, because it's just, it's so frustrating. Um, and you know what I'm going to say now I'm going to say, well, we've done, uh, I've done a beautiful interview with a part-time AAC user who, you know, as an adult with autism and just go listen to that episode. And that's why we use, you know, alternative systems. Um, and so I just think that the, this article is fantastic and I'm really excited, 
you know, it goes into so much detail, like you said, about, um, you know, unreliable, you know, speech, insufficient speech. Um, I think the breakdown is really important because, you know, it's not just one thing. It could be a multitude of things kind of overlapping over each other. Um, but the end of the day, you know, using alternative systems is, you know, sometimes probably more efficient uh, and more comfortable for you. Yeah, I mean, I have taught face-to-face classes and I have taught online classes, having taught similar content, 75-minute class in both cases, online at an hour when I would rather be asleep versus face-to-face with oral speech at a time that is theoretically the peak of my day. I am much more tired after doing it face-to-face than I am online, even though by the end of the online class where I did not speak, it's late enough that I should be asleep. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, That's so fascinating. So uh, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you face being a part-time AAC user? Other people. Not so much in the sense of other people actively trying to prevent AAC use. Thankfully, I've been fairly lucky there. But other people in terms of, with the exception of other autistic AAC users, no one's really been suggesting this is an option. So finding out about it required community involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, other people in the sense that they may see me using AAC for different reasons because speech could give out on me because there's construction or in one case, explosion testing in the environment where I'm supposed to be working. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing sensory trigger. Frankly, I should just go home. Um, Or I could lose speech because it's the end of the day and I'm tired. Mm -hmm. Or there were sensory triggers on the way to where I am, but the environment where I am now is fine. People who primarily seen me needing AAC for one of those reasons may consistently react to all of my AAC use like it's from that particular cause. Mm-hmm. And no, if it's the end of the long day, I'm going to pull out my tablet and I'm going to be fine. If there's explosion testing, I want to go home. <laughs> I want to yeah. go home now. I don't um, blame you. <laughs> and essentially my needing to use my alternative communication options isn't a good signal of my mental, emotional, physical state, but it's the visible signal that a lot of people go by because they have trouble reading my body language. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of eh, other people. (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that we just need more you know, adults who use AAC part-time to kind of talk about their experiences. And I know just, you know, this conversation that we've had has completely, you know, shaped the way that I want to practice. And I I feel like I had already been practicing that, but it's just like so reaffirming to talk to you, to listen to your experience and confirm what I already kind of suspected, um, you know, that we, we need multiple systems. And I'm just such a big believer and we need to allow you know, individuals 
to choose what works best for them in you know any given moment. And so I think as practitioners, because there's a lot of practitioners that listen to this podcast, um, just being really mindful of we don't know what system or what app or what's going to work best. And so I think constantly trying to introduce our clients, um, you know, to that. And then of course, educating parents, teachers, other therapists about everybody, exactly knowing that, you know, this is a tool. It's not like, I think that oftentimes when we think about augmentative alternative communication, um, you know, we just think about the alternative piece, right? But, you know, let's augment communication, right? Like let's- One of those A's stands for augmentative. Exactly. With the multiple tools, I see people being like, this device, this specific app is your voice. Yes and no. It's my voice. Mine. Leave it alone. (laughs) Don't take it away from me. What the hell, guys? (laughs) But also, it is part of, it is a tool. It is part of my voice. It's not the only thing I use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We always ask the people that we interview on this podcast, if you had a billboard that every SLP read, what would you want your billboard to say? All right. So... I think I may need to give a little bit of explanation after the billboard, but the billboard reads in all caps, AAC for everyone. Yes. And the explanation is on one of Ash's more inclusive definitions, because they define it in a couple different places. They describe AAC as covering all of the ways that people communicate instead of or in addition to speech and they note that we all use it that it includes things like texting it includes things like writing it includes signed language it includes body language we all use it but then when we start thinking about implementation we tend to think of it as an intervention tool a therapy tool and not as a life tool that we're using everywhere and that should be considered for everyone. Everyone, or just about everyone, is going to experience a time where speech is not their preferred option, whether it's because they want to pass a note to a friend in class instead of having the teacher hear what they said, whether it's because they're texting in the back seat to keep their mom from hearing it, whether it's because they're texting because phones are hard. AAC for everyone. No, really. Do it for real. <laughs> no, really, everyone. <laughs> yes, lo- your client whose speech sounds good. Exactly. Oh, man, Alyssa, I need you in my back pocket every time I talk to, you know, a a parent or a teacher who's questioning me. (laughs) I, um, well, you don't have me in your back pocket, but you have a peer-reviewed article that I am first author on that I probably should not encourage you to literally roll it up and hit people with it, but to metaphorically do so. (laughs) Yep. I will definitely metaphorically do that. <laughs> and I, I, I am allowed to send it to people who ask me for it. So just a heads up, y'all. If you ask me for it, you will get it. 
Lovely. So where can people find you? I have an email address that I think I gave you. Perfect. I yeah, have, we, we can link to that in the show notes. Yeah. I have an academia.edu page. Um, that has a lot of my published stuff because this is actually not the first time I've written about AAC publicly, and it's not going to be the last. Um, those are probably the best ways to get at me. I am not going to give you all a phone number for reasons that may be obvious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you, Alyssa. <laughs> I don't oh. use my phone for that. Yes. Um, so speaking of all, you know, these publications and your kind of academia work, what is on the horizon for you? I'm just so excited about the work that you've already done and I'm just dying for the work that you're about to do. Okay. So I have an essay that was accepted with minor revisions and then revised and then turned in for the journal Curriculum Inquiry about how and why taking a formal class on augmentative and alternative communication was actually really awkward <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, not the professor's fault, but am I a student? Am I the curriculum? Am I a teacher? Am I all of this at once? What, what, am I part of what should be the curriculum, but not, actually here because autism research focuses on kids and I am not five years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I am not an emerging communicator. The other projects that I'm working on, I have things related to brain-computer interfaces. And I am also working on a survey about the awareness, use, and perceived effectiveness of AAC strategies for autistic adults because the sample size of public writing by people who use AAC and care enough about it to talk about it publicly is not that big. There's way more autistic adults in the world than that. I want to know how many of us know about the option, how many of us are using it, What's working? What's not? How are we finding out about it? Because it seems to mostly not be through professionals. And um, that seems like an area where, come on, professionals, <laughs> you can do better. I, I could not agree more, Alyssa. I'm like, that's why we started this podcast, because we really need to inform speech-language pathologists especially, um, but all professionals, about AAC. And there's a lot of myths surrounding them, you know, one of which being a child, you know, if a child talks, they don't need AAC. Not no. true. Right? So, I mean, I think that the work you're doing is truly amazing, Alyssa, and so important. And so I'm just so happy that you were able to come on and share your story. I can't wait to have you on again. This is not the first, or this is the first interview, but it's definitely not the last. Um, I definitely am interested in, you know, all of the amazing things that you're going to do on the research front um, and just building awareness. I think that's so important. Um, you know, and, and I would love, you know, 
AAC users, part-time AAC users. Um, love to talk to more of them. I'd love you to get more information from them. So I just really commend you on the work you're doing. It's, it's truly amazing. And I'm just so happy that you were able to come on today and share with us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm guessing then that you might want me back when I have more research. <laughs> you know, I could talk to you all day, Lisa. So you don't necessarily have to have more research to come back on. <laughs> Definitely when you have more research, we're, we're going to have you on. All righty. All right, Alyssa, thank you again so much for coming on. For Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel. We will talk to you guys next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.